So it's a bit of a different message for me from me today. Um, this is kind of inviting you onto a journey that I've been on for a little bit, and um, I'm going to try and lay out the start of the journey and kind of invite you or lay on for you a bit of a theological buffet, if I can do, um, with a kind of pick and mix of illustrations. I wanted to do a lot more, but um, you guys probably wanted to go home today, so I won't do all of that. Um, this particular title is extracted from one of our worship songs, and um, a few weeks ago when uh, Jo Wright was leading worship, she stuck on this refrain and just kept on going over and over and over, and I thought, you know what, that really describes what I think God's offering to do for us. And I, I believe it's particularly in regards to rediscovering the beauty and the power of the gospel. And so let me tell you a little bit about the origin of this, this story. So I was preparing for the hot topic that we're doing on Tuesday, and I went to see this guy called Magdi, um, who's an Egyptian guy uh, based over in Watford, and I wanted to ask him about his understanding of of Islam. And he said, so why do you want to know? Do you just want to give your people tactics on how to reach Muslims? I thought, you know, I, I really don't. He said, the best motivator for evangelism is a fascination with the gospel ourselves. And so I've been thinking about that ever since. And when we enjoy the implications that our names are written in heaven, when I realize that I've been reconciled with God, when I see the power of that curtain that was hung in the temple that separated his purity from my sin was torn from top to bottom... I don't need to be taught to evangelize. Something rises up in me. And I believe that while we're looking at this theme of harvest, that's something that God's inviting us back to. And so when I was talking to Magdi, he he got me to look at this particular scripture. So Jesus had just sent out the 72 to go and um, go to the towns before he got there to to do works and wonders and prepare the way. And so it says, (coughs) excuse me, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, this is Jesus talking, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the other stuff sounds pretty cool and worth getting excited about. I mean, demons and snakes and scorpions and all of it being able to conquer that stuff. But Jesus redirects that energy, that, that excitement to something deeper. What is the idea of names written in heaven? Well, in ancient societies, cities would have had um, big books that had the names of everyone that belonged to that city. And once you belonged to that city, you had the covering and protection of that city. You were registered there, and you were blotted out if you became unworthy of the benefits of being part of that city. So to have your names written in heaven meant you were citizens of heaven, that you were friends of God, approved by him, permitted to dwell with him. And the argument that Jesus put forward is that's far more worthy than any power or honour or wealth that you can find here on earth, even if it's a holy option, such as what the disciples came back saying. So 
Why is, why is it for us that we can get caught up in that is like even the demons obeying us? Well, there's so much good stuff going on all the time, such as uh, next week, I believe, um, Avril's helping chair a meeting at number 10 to talk about the future of family hubs a- across the UK. That's really exciting. That's really good. We're seeing people get saved. That's really good. We're seeing breakthroughs in individual lives. We're seeing things like Peace Together replicated in all the nation. These are really good. But they've not got a jot on having our names written in heaven. And sometimes we can get a little distracted by those things and wander off of the central focus that Jesus was redirecting the disciples to. All of those things, they're all great works and they're all God's works, and they're marvellous in our eyes. But even that shouldn't eclipse the joy of the gospel. I remember once um, Lucy November talking, and she said, sometimes when we're dry, or when we aren't seeing the beauty of the gospel, we find ourselves talking about God more, or at least talking about church business. And I've always found that quite a useful guide to think, you know what, have I lost a little bit about the fascination with the gospel Am I talking about structure, talking about meetings? But when we know that our names are written in heaven, it's all-encompassing. It changes everything. We, we see everything through it. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It takes a few seconds to really understand quite what he's saying. These aren't just a set of facts when we talk about the gospel that we've added to our belief system. Our belief system is absolutely smashed and repositioned around that central truth. Everything changes in the light of the gospel. It's like I see through it and see everything differently, putting on like a, like a, a filter on a camera or, on, or shades on, just everything changes colour. In um, Galatians, when you see the story of Paul confront, confronting Peter, so if you, if you remember the story that Paul had recognised that um, Gentiles could follow uh, Christ, they didn't need to go through all of the rules and laws that the Jewish people had always um, lived in, but He'd become influenced by those that were saying that the Gentiles needed to live by the same rules that the the Jews did. And so Paul started separating himself from from the rest of the Gentiles when it came to eating. He he sat with with just the Jews uh, that are following Jesus and not the, the Gentiles that are following Jesus. And Paul confronts this. But he could have just said, Paul, don't be racist. But he didn't say, Paul, don't be racist. He said, sorry, um, he said, Peter, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So you're negating the gospel. That was his first charge against Peter. It wasn't that he was racist. It was that he wasn't living by the gospel because, as C.S. Lewis says, everything changes in the light of the gospel. We've got to come back to seeing everything through that perspective. Because it's in the gospel we see God's nature. We see his life. We see his love for everything. So I believe the invitation for us is to never lose our fascination 
with our salvation. I want to be infatuated with the good news. I don't want to just get the the promises. I want the promise maker. I want to go back to the root, to the core of what he said. But if I'm honest, I don't live in that on a a daily basis. It becomes old-fashioned to me. It becomes elementary and I move on to the next thing. And I'm not always living in that fascination. And um, this next clip by John Piper... He's just talking about his definition of lostness. And I think sometimes this applies to me, and you might also feel that it applies to you. Lostness is blindness to the glory of God. Lostness is spiritual blindness to the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It is looking at the gospel facts and seeing nothing beautiful. Nothing compelling, nothing arresting, nothing convicting. It's just either boredom or foolishness. That's blindness. That's lostness. It's very frightening. Very frightening. Lostness is blindness to spiritual light. We all know people like this. And we love them very much. You may be one. I hope you're loved by somebody. I know you are. If you have any Christian relatives or friends. What's it like to have somebody in your love life like that? You meet with them and you pour out your heart to them. And you tell them about their sin and your sin and about Christ as the only person in the universe who, who has done anything that would help with this. Hinduism has no answer for a sin problem with the Holy God. Buddhism has no answer for a sin problem separating us from the Holy God. Islam has no answer for the sin problem separating us from the Holy God. Secularism and humanism have no answer. They don't even address the issue. And the issue is screaming in every human soul, I'm guilty and I'm scared. It only crops up sometimes late at night. If you drink enough booze, do enough drugs, or work hard enough at work, you can keep it suppressed. But it's going to break out and your soul is going to witness to the truth of your image in the, in the image of God. And it's going to say, I need a I need a savior. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I've offended my maker. I haven't loved him. I haven't trusted him. I haven't walked with him. I'm a selfish person. And those religions have nothing to offer. Just go to them. Go to any and ask them, in your religion, how is the chasm between my guilt and God's perfection bridged? Ask them. There's no answer. Only one, Christ, stretched out on the cross, bearing our sin, providing our righteousness. And people that we love listen to us, and they just stare at us. It's so frightening. You want to scream. You want to jump up and down. You want to take them by the collar. You want to die. You want to die. I'll die. I'll die. What would it take? got anybody like that you love you feel so helpless you feel so helpless 
They may even believe the facts. Okay, I'll believe the facts. The devil believes the facts. Believing the facts doesn't save anybody. You've got to see something shining off of those facts. Namely, this is beautiful. This is precious. This is infinitely valuable. Don't scoff at those folks. You were one. Weep, tremble, pray. Lostness is looking at the gospel facts, seeing nothing beautiful, nothing compelling, nothing arresting, nothing convicting. It's merely boring or foolishness. Sometimes that's true for me. Now, I know uh, John Piper's talking particularly about those that, that have never come into recognizing who Jesus is, but there is an element that I still live in that. But I, I was lost in darkness, and then he said, let there be light. Suddenly, something that was boring became so crucial and relevant and alive to me. And it wasn't just about accepting the facts. It was something that the Spirit of God sovereignly did by his grace to wake me up. How, how do we make sure that we don't get lost in that again? I find, I live in the Lifeline bubble. I work with, uh, in Lifeline House around a bunch of Lifeline Christians. I have development group with Christians. I lead the youth with Christians. Uh, I, just, I, I end up paraphrasing when I'm talking about the gospel because we all know it and I'm not going to be preaching at you. But I miss those chances of talking to someone that doesn't know it because when I'm talking to them, something rises up in me. But I believe that's an opportunity to live by that, whoever I'm talking to, even if I'm on my own. Here's some people that seem to have got it. Paul got it. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Peter and the angels got it. Even angels look into these things. He's talking about the gospel. Angels long to look into these things. They're excited about it. They're fascinated. Tim Keller says, We are called not simply to communicate the gospel to non-believers. We must also intentionally celebrate the gospel before them. I want that to be true of me. I want to be actively celebrating the gospel. I want to be fascinated with my salvation once again. Another guy that got it that I've often talked about is Horatio Spafford. He wrote... Um, the, the song, It's Well With My Soul. And uh, if you're not familiar with his story, um, his whole family were sailing over to, to England while he was still in America, and their boat sank. And his, I think it was four children all drowned. And he was following afterwards, a few weeks later, to be with his grieving wife in the UK. And the captain of the ship called him up to say, just to let you know, this was about where, where the last boat sank. And at that moment of that grief hitting him that his four children drowned at that point. This was the song that he wrote, and a clip from that song is this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. At the point where he was in absolute grief, something he saw, he looked at the gospel facts and he saw something beautiful. Something rose up in him that was relevant at that point in time. I don't think it's something that we can understand from the outside. We've got to be in those situations to experience 
that, that falling in love again with our salvation. But what if I haven't got it like these guys have got it? And I want it. How do I get it? Well, the encouraging thing is he does the renewing. And my dad spoke about this last Sunday. It's about what he does. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened to you. David says in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. There's something that I can't do that only he can do. He can restore my joy, the joy of his salvation. And we don't need everything stripped away to get to this point. We're having a conversation in our development group about those times where everything kind of falls apart. And that's when you realize, well, God's all that I need. We don't need everything stripped away for this to be true. And that's what I believe God's offering us. And because mainly John spoke about that last week, I'm not going to focus much more on the fact that he does the renewing, but I want you to remember it. Because I want to talk a little bit about our partnership and the things that we can do. And our partnership is to use our imagination. If you're at the first Tuesday prayer meeting, I I use the delightful image of when you're chewing a piece of chewing gum and you've let it kind of sit between your, your clenched teeth for a little while and then you, you start chewing it again and suddenly you realize, oh look, there's more flavour in there. Oh, happy day. There's more to be released. There was a, um, there was a guy that I met in Sierra Leone that um, because he'd uh, lived in the jungle during the war, um, food was hard to come by and so he learnt to not taste his food, he just swallowed it. And um, so how they would traditionally eat would be to have a big plate of rice that a number of people would eat, and you kind of work from your kind of edge of the plate. Well, they had to stop this kid from eating because he was just grabbing handfuls and swallowing it and and invading other people's areas of rice before they got to it because he'd learnt just to swallow. And they said, no, you've got time. Savour the flavour, get something out of it. And I believe that's what God calls us to. We actually have a responsibility and an opportunity to use our imagination. There's things that God has done in those gospel messages that, that we can't just paraphrase and skim over. There's more flavor than we've ever thought that there is. And I believe that's an invitation and a charge that God's giving us today. So how do we use our imagination? Well, first, we can boast What is it that manages to get soldiers like that to run, to charge into battle where they're almost certain to face death? What is it that makes them think, yes, let's let's run towards certain death? Well, before they, they get released, they boast, they shout to each other, they build themselves up, they shout, you know what, we've got a bigger army than they have, we've got better trained, we've got better weapons, we've, we've got the giant, we've got the champion on our side, we've got a worthier cause. All these things are, are there to, to build them up, to use their imagination. We need to boast. Galatians 6.14, may I never boast 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's what I want to boast in. I want to boast in the cross. To some it's foolishness, to some it's scandalous, but to me it's salvation. When I'm, sal- when I'm fascinated with my salvation, that's what I'm going to boast in. I'm going to get a sense of pride rising up in me. Like, that's my God. That's my God doing that. When um, Colby came up and talked about Noah, and he put the two pictures on of that, that baby, that was my God that did that. I know him. He's revealed himself to me. He, he has come and he has saved me. I know him. I know him. I remember um, one young person that um, came along to one of our youth events and um, some, some of the guys had told me about him beforehand and I felt that God was going to give me something to say to him. And we were sat in one of these, one, during one of these events and we were just chatting and he, he, he said to me, I, I could never come around to believe in, in God. I thought, okay, and so we just kept on talking. And without knowing it, the next thing that he said is, so what have I got to do to be saved? Like, wow. And it was just like the presence of God descended on our conversation. It was like this fog just engulfed him. And it's like, he was lost in something. I just enjoyed that. That was my God that did that. He did that. I know him. I see him. There was a book um, by Max Licardo called He Still Moves Stones. And it just went through a number of the stories of what Jesus did when he was walking on earth. And I remember finishing that book and I thought, I know him. I know him. I get to talk to him. He's the God of all creation. He did all those things 2,000 years ago. And I know him. He's mine. A couple of weeks back, uh, Neil talked about Corrie Ten Boone, played, played that thing about her um, not being able to forgive the, uh, the prison guard um, and she said, we were made to strip naked and we were humiliated. And then she remembered back the gospel about Jesus being stripped naked and hung on that cross. And she said, because of that, I can do it. That's boasting. That's pride in what he has done for us. And so that's a charge for us. Boast to each other. Build each other up. And don't be satisfied that it doesn't touch us. Because... By his grace, these things should touch us once more. We can drill deeper as well. These are a bunch of questions that um, I ask myself at times to help drill deeper into the gospel. I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, But sometimes if we don't think into some of these questions, all the things that we read about in the gospel are really lovely but unnecessary. Is, do you remember the, um, the Cadbury's milk tray adverts of, it must have been about 15 years ago. You've got this, this guy that is, um, I think he's like got a bandana on and he's climbing across buildings and jumping over things. And you think, what is this guy, some kind of ninja? Is he a spy? What's he doing? And then he finally arrives in front of this woman and he presents to her a box of chocolates. And that's... That's how much the lady loves milk tray or something like that. Something like that. Sometimes, if we don't ask these drill-down questions, we just think, wow, that's a really sweet expression of love that, that he, had, he, he came down and he was hung on a cross. 
wow, that's really special that Jesus was, was sinless. Now, these things are critical, and because they're critical, it changes the way that we see the gospel. We see something shining back off those facts. So, one of the ones that I was thinking about, why is it critical that Jesus was sinless? Oh, it was to, to, to show us how, he is, how we can live life. No, there were, there's implications in that. If you drill down, you look at Hebrews 9 and Deuteronomy uh, 17, 1 Peter 1, all of this lays out why it was critical that he was sinless. And that's something we can boast and celebrate about. All right, if, if God's so, so big, why couldn't he just forgive us from heaven? Why did he have to come down? Couldn't he just turn a blind eye to our sin? No, he couldn't. Unless you understand the answer to this question, the gospel seems over the top and tokenistic. But these questions take time to drill into them. Find out what the Bible says about them, because when I look into these things, I see something shining back off those gospel facts. If the angels long to look into this, there's something more that we've yet to discover. All these slides will be available in the nutshell. Okay, now on to my buffet of illustrations. So I, I think in illustrations, my approach now is a kind of a scattergun of giving you some illustrations in the hope that some of them might be helpful for you. I find that these things, once they kind of get inside me, I can chew on them for a little bit and get a lot of flavour out of them. So the first one, scaling up. So putting God in his rightful place. Now, I'm not a physicist, but I've done a bit of research on this. So the distance from the Earth to the Sun is 93 million miles. If you were to represent that by the thickness of this piece of paper, which is about 0.05 millimetres thick, okay, so that's your scale. The distance between the Earth, oh, sorry, did I say the Moon? Earth and the Sun is represented by that. That's... 93 million miles. The nearest, the nearest star other than the sun to the earth would be represented by a stack of papers 70 feet high. Now, if you don't know what 70 feet high looks like, this is what... Okay, so that's 70 feet high which represents 426,720 trips to the sun. Okay, that, that distance there. Now, the diameter of the galaxy would be measured by a stack of papers 310 miles high. Now, 310 miles high, if you left here, it would get you to almost, or well, just before Northumberland. Okay, Now, that's a stack of paper going up high. So each mile that you drive would represent 13,411,166 trips to the sun. Getting a sense of the size? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You don't invite someone like that into your life to be your secretary. 
you don't put someone in your life like that as an add-on. You invite them to be Lord, absolute. And once you begin to get the context of that size, and you see 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. This is the kind of stuff we can chew on, and when we look at those gospel facts, we see something beautiful shining back at us. He's written in his story. If you were at Hot Topic, you would have seen this one. This is Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space. He's a Russian cosmonaut, apparently. Yeah. So he went up into space, first man there. And when he returned, the leader of the USSR at the time, Khrushchev, said, Why are you clinging to God? Here, Gagarin flew into space and didn't see God. So obviously, uh, USSR doesn't believe in God. Um, the state is God. And so this, this concept of God, he's been up to space and he didn't find God. So he's been up to the heavens, there's no God there. At the time, C.S. Lewis wrote an article. And he said, that logic of Khrushchev is as stupid as saying... Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. The only way creation would know of the creator is if the creator wrote himself into the story. This is Dorothy L. Sayers. She was a um, crime fiction writer. Um, she never regarded herself as particularly attractive. She was one of the first women to receive a degree from Oxford. Um, and she wrote about this detective called Lord Peter Whimsey. And he was a detective going around solving crimes, but he was lonely. And suddenly you see this other character start to appear in the books, Harriet Vane. Interestingly, she was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. She was a writer of detective stories, and she wasn't particularly pretty. And she meets Lord Whimsey, and they fall in love, and they live happily ever after. You can see through it, can't you, that she wrote herself into the story. She saw her creation lonely, lost in need of a saviour, and... She entered in herself. God wrote himself into my story. I was lost. I was in need of a saviour. And he came as a helpless babe and came and found me and saved me. Okay, last of the pick and mix. The Great Reversal. Okay, James, my glamorous assistant, come and assist me. Okay. We're attracted to substitutionary sacrifices, things that, that switch. Um, we love the story of, of Aslan 
taking the, the penalty for, um, for, what was his name? Edmund. Um, I was moved by the story of the, the French policeman that, that um, in the, one of the most recent um, terrorist attacks substituted himself for one of the um, hostages and sadly he was killed by the terrorist. But that switching, it reaches something in us because I think it's written in our DNA that there is something appealing about it. Now, before the cross, we see that Jesus was welcomed in. We see that God was... Let me come over here so I'm out of the way. We see that he was with God. Meanwhile, I was isolated. That my sin had separated me from God. That I was excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. As a stranger, I was without God in the world. Jesus was beautiful. The fullness of God dwelled in him. And those that would look at him would know that they were gazing on beauty. Whereas me, God couldn't even look on me because I was cosmically ugly with the sin inside me. Jesus was clothed with righteousness. Talks about him being the righteous one that God could look at him and say, with him I'm well pleased. Whereas I was naked, there's nothing that was hidden from God, that my righteous deeds were like filthy garments, and no one could be declared righteous in God's sight. He was innocent. He had no sin, and yet I was sinful at birth, and we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he was due honour, being in his very nature God. Whereas I was due punishment, because the wages for sin is death, and we were by nature deserving of wrath. But then, after the cross, something happens. Things are switched round. He became isolated. God, why have you forsaken me? But in return, I've been brought to God. He became ugly. He was beaten. He took the worst of humanity. Every sin fell upon him. Every paedophile, every murderer... Every genocide fell upon him, yet we become the beautiful bride of Christ. He hung on that cross naked. He emptied himself. But the clothes that he was was taken off of him were put onto me. He wrapped me with a robe of righteousness that I become the righteousness of God. He 
he became sin for us so that I would be regarded as blameless and innocent, that I would have no condemnation. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God raises up with Christ and seats us in heavenly realms. This is the great reversal. Everything that he deserved, I got. John Stott says, The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where only we deserve to be. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ came to earth, he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that God could be both just and justifier. To know that he had to die, to know that my sins were that bad, humbles me. But to know that he was glad to die affirms me, absolutely. Thank you, my glamorous assistant. Let's just imagine... Again, what what it can be like when we look at those gospel facts and we see something shining back at us. We see something beautiful. Be the bubbling up with pride when when you overhear someone talking about God. Imagine that he has been pursuing you this whole time. Imagine you immediately see the relevance to Jesus, of Jesus to issues you encounter. Imagine an, un, uh, an insatiable appetite for more of God. Questions, thoughts, songs, pictures capture your imagination. Imagine you have a sense of his stabilising love in situations where you usually feel insecure. Imagine the labels which have imprisoned you your whole life fall off one by one. Imagine peace floods in when your position or your performance has been questioned and criticised. Imagine truly believing that he has forgotten your sin. Imagine your love for others ushering you into conversations which you would normally avoid like the plague. When I truly see the gospel, I see everything differently because of it. Imagine the impact of seeing afresh what he's done for you and allowing that to change everything. We don't need to come up with strategies to evangelise. we just got to see what we're talking about once more. We don't have to be bored. Just turn to God who can restore the joy of your salvation. And we can choose to use our imagination. Engage in conversations. Boast in these things. Let God stir something in us again. And it's something that we can experience. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, 
when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood? Who is love and not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. We have heard of this great salvation and been refreshed in that today. We've just been declaring no love is higher, no love is wider. Here's a response. An old song. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. I'm suggesting that we want to take what we've heard and be faithful to the instruction of God's word and be doers rather than just hearers. And I'm suggesting that if you identify with what we've been hearing, what Jamie's been sharing with us, this nonchalant attitude to the gospel, it no longer has that effect. I'm saying that there's a, there's a moment in time when Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. And I'm talking about the temptation for this to just be relegated to something that we either once knew or maybe have never known. Maybe we just know it as facts. Maybe we're, like he described, just knowing something about it, but it doesn't really have any profound effect. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. How about this? Being the time for the tempter's power that would relegate this into some story instead of the living fact that changes a totality of life, your life, my life, all that he has purposed. When Jesus comes, just like that, there's nothing that can stand, no thought process, no limitation of our ability to comprehend, no limitation of our spirit to really rise into the truth of this. No, nothing can stand against, because when Jesus comes, the tempter's power that would blind our minds and restrict our being and leave us in a, a place of dead in our spirit instead of alive unto him. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom, the dullness, and fills our life with glory. But all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. This is a moment to turn aside from the story and say, Lord, because you have come and because right now we come into your presence, I, for one, choose to turn aside from a story about something into the living reality. Lord, will you grant according to what we know, that the tempter's power is broken by your greater power. I'm inviting you to do that. I'm inviting those of you that have never, ever lived in the true reality of what we've been hearing this morning. 
into the excitement, into the, into the wonder of this great salvation. You've heard about it, but you, you want to come into the, the kind of things he was talking about this morning. This is the moment. For those of you that once had that level of freshness and excitement, but it's time for that to be renewed. Here's my question. Here's my invitation. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. For all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. Just tell him right now. Lord, I receive the power, that supernatural power that brings me into the reality of who you are and what you've done. Even if I knew before, like I've, beyond anything I've ever experienced, Lord, that I may live in the fullness of who you are and what you've done. That's kind of how I'm suggesting you might respond to God. Lord, your power is greater because no love is higher, no love is wider. Just declare it now. Lord, I want to come into the living reality of who you are and what you've done. I want to be renewed. I want to be refreshed in that. I don't want to be trying to hang on the coattails of somebody else's experience. Lord, come meet with me. Because even as we declare the words of the old song, all is changed when you come to stay. Come on, let's just reach out to him now. Just call upon him. Lord, we just invite you now to confirm your word with signs following. We ask, Lord, that you would deliver all those who turn to you from being simply on the outside looking in, as though they're looking through a window into a, a room that is filled with love and joy and attraction, but somehow they're, they're on the outside, not really understanding what it's like on the inside. Now, Lord, we ask, that even as they turn to you, that you would break that power of the tempter that would keep them from the inside and just leave them on the outside. And Lord, for those of us that, that need again to be renewed and refreshed in the reality of just, just who you are and what you've done, grant, Lord, that you would now fulfill this. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. Yes? Say yes, Lord. Count me in, Lord. This is for me. This is for me. So, Lord, we just invite you now to move amongst us the power of the Holy Spirit, releasing revelation, renewing hearts, 
causing, Lord, that supernatural manifestation and experience which cannot be described and can only be understood by experience. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. For Lord, you sought me. You broke through the barriers. You shed light into my darkened soul and understanding. And you brought me into your family. And I will ever thank you, my Lord and my God. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It's well, it's well with my soul. I was, I brought, that, that uh, hymn came to me this morning, and uh, Jamie, you shared it, and I feel that for, there's someone here today who needs to know that, the two songs I had was that, and I'm a new creation, no more in condemnation. Here in the grace of God I stand. What John's brought to us is in the same line. This is about you stepping free from something that is, is holding you back. God wants you to know that the, you no longer bear that sin. Whatever it is, it's nailed to the cross. And it's well with your soul, because he sorted it out by his grace.